Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. We have been on a kick with amazing guests on the program. I hope you've been enjoying my conversations with newsmakers across hunting, fishing, and shooting sports. We have more coming down the pipeline, including tomorrow's guest, Amber Smith, who's going to talk about her really fascinating article on how artificial intelligence and the technologies associated with it can be used to combat high-intensity wildfires. So make sure you stay tuned for that. But today, what I have for you all is kind of an exploration of two interesting news items. I'll deliver kind of analysis in a brief format for you all because I want you to read this for yourself, make your own assumptions. But stay with me as we talk about two topics, namely the strange occurrence of more dead whales of various different species showing up dead on various different beaches across the Atlantic coast, namely New Jersey and most recently Assateague Island on the shore of Maryland, which borders Virginia pretty closely. And then we're going to talk about this bill that's garnered a lot of attention in Wyoming in the state legislature about the proposal to ban or essentially phase out electric vehicles in the cowboy state by 2035, kind of a response to California's bill to phase out cars by 2030, 2035. Some people are unsure if it's serious. Maybe it's a joke. Perhaps they're serious. We'll break down that and the whale story for you all on the podcast today. What the heck is going on with dead whales washing ashore on various New Jersey beaches and most recently Assateague Island off coastal Maryland, right near the Virginia border? A lot of people are quick to dismiss this kind of concern. They're not really caring so much about this. And there's a discussion about whether or not development of offshore wind technologies is fueling these whale deaths. And I'm not going to dismiss that assertion because there actually is some merit to that. I know some listening may be like, you're so crazy. Why would you entertain this thought? I've spoken to several people, very serious people who are not kooks. And I tried to talk to reputable people, but people who live in these regions, yes, they're critical of offshore wind, but they've looked into the numbers and some of the research, and they say that offshore wind more so than vessel strikes or whale-human entanglements, conflicts, can better explain why this is happening. And hear me out. I first want to read to you, before we dive deep into why people are blaming these whale deaths on geo-surveying that is happening in the Atlantic because there's a whole push from a lot of states and even federally to do and meet a goal of 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2035. Let's discuss some of the statements. So we have two congressmen um, from both of these states. We have 
Congressman Jeff Van Drew, who doesn't sit on natural resources or energy, I think he's on transportation committee, he, in response to the six or seven whale deaths that were revealed in Jersey's coast, in a press release dated January 13th, Congressman Jeff Van Drew has called for a halting of all offshore wind activity off New Jersey's coast until there are investigations held explaining and rooting out why the whales have died. So he is quoted as saying, since offshore wind projects are being proposed by Governor Phil Murphy to be built off the coast of New Jersey, I have been adamantly opposed to any activity moving forward until research disclosed the impacts these projects would have on our environment and the impacts on the fishing industry, he is quoted as saying. Ocean life is being put at risk as our governor and president force through their Green New Deal policies without giving full consideration to their real-world impacts. We have seen a complete lack of transparency from New Jersey leaders as well as D.C. politicians who are ramming through these projects in order to push their climate agenda. He ends his statement by saying, once committees of the 118th Congress are finalized, I will be calling for congressional investigations into the matter. I demand that all offshore wind activity be halted until it is properly determined what the effects of these activities are having on our marine life. I will also pull a statement from Congressman Andy Harris, another Republican who represents the state of Maryland, and he is quoted as saying similarly that there should be a, quote, immediate moratorium on windmill construction and related underwater geotechnical testing until it is definitively proven that this construction and testing are not the cause of the repeated whale deaths. And this was after news recently of a humpback whale being discovered deceased on Assateague Island National Seashore. That is known for the wild ponies, if you've been there. I have never heard, I I know there are whale sightings in that part of Virginia, Maryland, but I've never heard of like them washing dead ashore. That's pretty unprecedented. And the proposed, we have two offshore wind turbines in Virginia, which are pretty far away from Assateague, Chincoteague. I don't think they're, maybe they're at least 50 miles or more offshore um, because the proposed turbine farm, I think is, it's already offshore, like 25 some odd miles. I know the two that they have that cost $300 million is offshore, at least like 27, 25 miles. And I think whatever they have planned with a coastal offshore wind project in Virginia, which I hope gets defeated, personally speaking, just reading into it, I don't think it's a good idea. We've analyzed it here. So I don't think it's exactly close, but it's not too far. Um, Perhaps the geo surveying that many are Faulting the blame for the deaths of whales can be attributed to this, but it's not exactly close, but it's not exactly far away. And I want to read for you. Let's let's give deference to the other side. Um, there is a NOAA fishery scientist who is quoted as saying that, and this is from the Chesapeake Bay Magazine, Ben Laws of the NOAA's Office of Protected Resources, was quoted as saying, we do not believe that the evidence supports these planned construction activities would exacerbate or compound the ongoing mortality events. But Congressman Harris is quoted as saying, Noah has offered zero evidence that this construction included geotechnical testing is not the cause of death. Chesapeake Bay Magazine writes this, when considering offshore winds activities, possible impact on marine mammals, Noah defines whale harassment in two levels of severity. Level A harassment refers to injury to the whales and level B refers to behavioral disturbances to whales. Laws acknowledges that Atlantic Coast offshore wind proposals that have been issued would allow level B harassment to whales with some limited instances of level A harassment in the form of noise exposure. And as Noah points out, 
There is also potential for survey activity to injure whales because the extra boat traffic could increase the chance of vessel strikes. And they write that Congressman Harris takes it a step further, suggesting that seismic activity related to the wind industry may cause lasting damage to whales' hearing and senses. And with hearing damage, that would be more susceptible to boat strikes. And Harris wants a full and transparent release of necropsy results from the Assateague humpback whale, including a study on the whale bone's ears. But they write that NOAA standing... NOAA National Stranding and Emergency Response Coordinator Sarah Wilkins says ear bones are difficult to harvest during necropsies because of their location near the whale's skull and how quickly they decompose. So far, no necropsy results have been released from the January 16th whale stranding. But even as these studies start to come to the pipeline, and these studies should be conducted because of just the scale and the magnitude of these projects, And just the amount of natural resources and rare earth minerals that will be required to be able to build these projects, there's a lot of questions that surround this. And a NOAA fishery scientist, it was revealed at the end of last year in a FOIA request that was made in late spring, early summer of 2022, a NOAA fishery scientist warned the Biden administration that pursuing offshore wind, especially in fragile areas in coastal Massachusetts, would have deleterious effects on the right whale, the endangered North Atlantic right whale. So how could it be problematic in some instances, but not problematic elsewhere? I think there should be a comprehensive study done because these projects, it's, it's amazing that environmentalists who would normally be in support of whales have turned a blind eye to this. There has to be some activity. It can't just be vessel strikes all the time. I don't think that's the true you know, root cause of why these whales are dying. Do you really think fishermen and commuter vessels really want to injure these whales on purpose? I don't think so. So I am convinced that geotechnical or even geosurveying could explain this. I would like to see more information to substantiate this, but I don't think it's an impossibility given the, um, the scale of development that they want for offshore wind. This is going to affect marine life. It affects fish migration patterns. It affects... So many different things. And let's even talk about briefly before we move to the next topic, the amount of materials to construct a wind turbine. What does the size and scope of offshore wind projects entail? And you guys already know that the electricity output, while it's talked about as being very efficient, it is not. And you're going to be paying a lot more for electricity even after these wind turbines are constructed. But I found some interesting numbers from the EIA And they talk about the executive summary, the role of critical minerals in clean energy transitions. And it talks about, you know, they love it, they support it, et cetera, and that they want to see these goals, but they have to account for, obviously, the costs entailed and some of the inconvenient facts about what this is and what is entailed and and construction demands and, and all that. And so the short story of it is, and this is from Brian Gitton, he's a fairly renowned energy expert. He used to really be in on, you know, clean energy, but he has since kind of renounced those previous positions. And I will link to his tweet if you guys are interested, but the EIA is a pretty interesting authority, pretty reputable authority minerals used in clean energy technologies compared to other power generation sources. So one wind turbine, particularly offshore requires 900 tons of steel, 2,500 tons of concrete and 45 tons of non-recyclable plastic. And he says that the offshore wind farm requires 13 times more critical minerals than natural gas power plant. 
And he also talks about how many boats and vessels will be required to, you know, construct the output. I have to find those again. We'll talk about that more. But it's not a very cost-effective process. Like, they keep saying green energy is going to be free. It's going to be not so costly. But like with onshore wind and solar, a lot of these so-called green technologies are not possible without subsidies. That's what they're largely based on. There's really no market demand without subsidies. And I wouldn't even call it a market demand when it's backed by subsidies. But these projects cannot exist without subsidies. We're going to have some far more eloquent experts. I've recently connected with two women who are in the commercial fishing industry, and they've been studying offshore wind turbines. And one of them was telling me that this geotechnical surveying, this has largely explained why the whales are dying. And when someone like that is telling you that, you ought to listen. So we're going to have those two ladies on to talk more about whale deaths, offshore wind, and that whole confluence very, very soon. But let's move on to the Wyoming electric vehicle story. Let's keep in line with this theme of debunking clean energy and its efficiency, so to speak. You probably have seen the Senate resolution from the Wyoming state legislature calling for the prohibition of electric vehicles in the cowboy state by 2035. And it is Senate resolution four for the 2023 legislative session phasing out new electric vehicle sales by 2035. And it is sponsored by Senators Anderson, Boner, Cooper, and Doc Stater, and Representatives Burkhart and Henderson. And briefly, it is a joint resolution across both chambers of the Wyoming legislature expressing support for phasing out the sale of new electric vehicles in Wyoming by 2035. And the reason why I think the impetus behind this is because they want to respond to California pushing for the phasing out of gas-powered vehicles by 2035. Some people say this is kind of a joke resolution. It's not serious. But I think when you read the stipulations, it's probably rooted and founded in some seriousness because, if you guys know, 50% of Wyoming's economy is oil and gas, if I understood that correctly. I remember hearing from people, I've interviewed a lot of people from Wyoming, and they tell me like half of the economy is largely dependent on fossil fuels. So oil and gas production has long been one of Wyoming's proud and valued industries, and the oil and gas industry in Wyoming has created countless jobs and has contributed to revenues to the state of Wyoming throughout the state's history, and whereas since its invention, gas-powered vehicle has enabled the state's industries and businesses to engage in commerce and transport goods and resources more efficiently throughout the country, and whereas Wyoming's vast stretches of highways, coupled with a lack of electric vehicle charging infrastructure, make the widespread use of electric vehicles impractical for the state— and whereas the batteries used in electric vehicles contain critical minerals whose domestic supply is limited and at risk for disruption, and whereas the critical minerals used in electric batteries are not easily recyclable or disposable, meaning that municipal landfalls in Wyoming and elsewhere will be required to develop practices to dispose of these minerals in a safe and responsible manner, and the expansion of electric vehicle charging stations in Wyoming and throughout the country necessary to support more EVs will require massive amounts of new power generation in order to sustain the misadventure of EVs. And the United States has consistently invested in oil and gas industry to sustain gas-powered vehicles, and the investment has resulted in the continued employment of thousands of people, yada, yada, yada. So they talk about their resolution and why there is a motivation to do this. Now, if we're talking about the private development and deployment of EVs, 
I have no problem with that if it is truly resultant from the free market. I don't think in that way it's appropriate to have a resolution like this. However, since electric vehicles are largely being discussed and manufactured because of government incentives, I wouldn't even call them incentives, because of government subsidies, the allure of government subsidies, and this push to remove gas-powered cars off the market, much like with making our electric grid unstable by moving away from fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas, to unsustainable, unreliable solar and wind. It's the same with this push for moving us away from cars that work efficiently that are gas-powered to EVs that are far more expensive, far less efficient, and have questionable underpinnings in terms of how their rare earth minerals are sourced. And the only way I see people, I don't even think a subsidy even guarantees people. They've tried this before during the Obama years. They passed various stimulus packages to give EV credits. I think it was a denomination of 7,500. They've extended that even more. And they said that these subsidies are going to make people in lower and middle incomes have EVs at their fingertips. But the estimated cost of an electric vehicle, even with subsidies, on average is about 60 some odd thousand dollars. They certainly are making cheaper models, but you're Subsidy is not really going to give you a break. And do you really want to take a subsidy from the government? There's always strings attached and conditions to that. And they say that these subsidies are billed for people in lower incomes, but typically those who make at least $100,000, according to different studies I've cited and that are available, have said mostly those in upper middle incomes tend to enjoy this and that this is never really accessed by those in lower income brackets, middle income brackets. So it seems to me that if they're trying to tackle it, you know, rejecting government subsidized EVs, totally on board. And I think that's what they're trying to do here. Um, you can't fully eliminate it from the private market, but I think if it's a way to discourage government subsidized EVs, I'm all for this resolution. And that's how I feel about it because you can't really have EVs proliferating. They don't even make up any more than a couple percent of the total vehicle market. I think in California, it probably has the highest share, but you look at the totality of percentages of Americans owning electric vehicles. I've seen estimates as low as 1% from last summer, and I think Kelly Blue Book has a figure that says only about 3% of the total car market is EV. They say EVs make up less than 3% of cars on the road today, but they claim sales are quickly accelerating. And then they say EV sales won't grow in linear fashion. They'll snowball. Sales more than doubled in 2021. Da, 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 da. But even with the fanfare and the so-called investor excitement for EVs, again, without the subsidy and even with the subsidy, there's still little enthusiasm because of the cost that entail with switching to electric. You're still having to charge your car with fossil fuels, coal, namely. So you, your car may be fully electric, but you're still having to power it with fossil fuels. So why do that, go through extra hoops when you can have a gas-powered car and emit less? Additionally, the rare earth materials that go into making this come from questionable sources, especially from the Zhejiang province in China, uh, from slave labor in Africa, Asia, all these different places. Do you really feel environmentally sound knowing that child labor is largely behind the construction of your EV? I would feel very uncomfortable with that fact. Inefficiencies of the battery, battery replacements. You guys have seen the videos on social media too. It's not an exaggeration. When there's a extreme weather event, Florida, for instance, when they had the recent hurricanes, 
That battery got eroded and destroyed with one of the recent hurricanes, and it doesn't function anymore. Battery replacements are about $18,000 to $20,000. That's almost the cost of a conventional gas-powered car, that battery alone. And like I said, the average cost has somewhere fallen between, um, I've seen like $45,000 to $60,000 for EVs, just your basic ones, even with the so-called government rebate or subsidy that you're getting. So I don't see it as a practical adoption. I don't even think in the foreseeable future, they say by 2035, the states that have banned gas-powered vehicles, they're going to be unprepared. Uh, the, the vehicle fleet cannot transition so quickly because the consumers are not following this. Very People still, consumers are not going to get in line with this, rather, because they see the inefficiencies, the costs that come with it. You're not really abandoning fossil fuels. You're better off having, rather, the conventional gas-powered cars that are going to get you to long distances, to far places that are far more reliable, and you're not going to have to pay all these exorbitant fees. You're not going to have to replace different components to your car as frequently as possible. Certainly, there are maintenance costs with gas-powered cars, but to the level that you have with EVs, I don't think so. So I see no problem with this resolution. Will it have an impact? Will it actually restrict EV sales? That remains to be seen, but maybe we'll have one of the bill sponsors on the podcast soon to break down their motivation behind. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you haven't already, make sure you find us on your preferred podcast player. We largely circulate on Apple, Spotify, and countless others, but those are our two big podcast platforms we want to push. Make sure you're subscribed there, especially on Apple. If you like the podcast a lot, go leave us some reviews. We'd be more than grateful to get some five-star reviews from you guys. Moreover, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and a little bit on YouTube. We don't populate there, but connect with us on social media. Find me personally on social media with blue check marks. Super easy to find, and I would love to hear your feedback and know who you'd like to see on the podcast. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. Stay tuned for the next episode.